Hello and welcome to another edition of Precious Snowflakes, the podcast. I'm Lelius Rose. And I'm Ben Phelps. And this week we'll be discussing two topics near and dear to the hearts of many libertarians. Uh, One is the United Airlines kerfuffle and sort of government versus free market in finding solutions to consumer issues. And the second related topic will be the latest law proposal that would crack down on distracted driving by allowing, (laughs) by uh, making holding an electronic device verboten. Not just holding it, touching it. Touching it, except for <laughs> minimal finger use. Yes, we have discussed this topic before. However, the state legislator has ju- in Washington State has just, I believe, they just passed this law and it's headed to the governor's desk uh, very soon, if not already. And uh, we'll uh, expand upon that a little bit further. Yeah. But uh, it's been about it's been what a week now or so since the whole uh, United Airlines thing went down. For those of you who aren't aware, if you've been hiding under a rock for the last uh, couple of weeks, <laughs> there was a passenger uh, by the na- uh, name of David Dow, uh, a doctor from uh, from Kentucky. Doctor David Dow. Yes, he was forcibly dragged from a United Airlines flight after he refused. To give up his seat for one of United's uh, own employees who needed, uh, who was a, what's known as a deadheading employee, uh, you know, crew members who needed to fly to, to, to Louisville for their next flight. And uh, they uh, apparently they asked for volunteers because they needed these seats. And the first uh, two or three passengers took them up on their offer for $800. But Mr. Dow, you know, did not want to leave and did not accept their offer, and 800 was as high as they were willing to go. So they uh, they brought on some police officers and dragged him from his seat, bloodying him and bruising him in, in the process. Apparently, he, uh, according to his doctor, he suffered a concussion, as well as, you know, just the awful indignity of being physically dragged from a seat that he had paid for and was sitting in when when they came up and told him, sorry, you have to get off the plane so that one of our own employees can get where they need to go to go make us more money. And by the way, $800, yet we can't go any higher than that because that's just like as high as we go. So there's a lot of, of sort of vague, quasi-conflicting <laughs> information about the nature of this exact policy and procedure but Lel here actually <laughs> knows a thing or two about air, about airline policy and procedure. So would you care to explain well, one of the, exactly what happened? Well, here's the thing. One, airlines, basically, they have this thing known as their contract of carriage, which every airline has a contract of carriage. And it is a contract that you implicitly agree to when you purchase your ticket with them basically and it basically says that they don't guarantee anything and they can basically do whatever they want except as what's required by law for them to do and one of the things that they always say is that they can you know revoke your ticket pretty much for any old reason that they can think of uh they also uh there's a practice that's uh most people know that uh, that overbooking is a thing that exists in the airline industry, and it's been around for many decades now. It's a practice in which uh, the airlines essentially book more seats. They, they book more passengers than they have seats on the airplane because they know that not everyone always shows up. And so they they it's it's th- this way they don't have to fly with empty seats and 
and lose money. They, they, they may, you know, know, for example, historically that for any given flight, maybe 10% of the passengers cancel at the last minute. And so they'll maybe, they'll book, you know, an extra 10%. And mm. normally it works out fine. And, you know, <laughs> but when they, when they don't have enough seats, they have to make a choice or we have to make a choice as passengers. They'll, they offer, uh, they, they, they ask for volunteers in exchange for what's usually a travel voucher of their, the amount of their choosing, or if they can't get any volunteers to take, you know, to give up their seats, they have to do what's known as an involuntary bumping or involuntary denied boarding. And when that happens, there are very specific, uh, uh, rules that, that take effect when they and this and involuntary denied boardings are a very rare event they, they don't happen a lot because usually the airline will you know it's it's pretty simple economics they'll simply you know if no one goes for the four hundred dollars they raise it to eight hundred dollars and eventually they get to the point where somebody you know they're a few hours of their time is worth whatever they're offering but this is a you know in 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 this particular case there had been a lot of uh bad weather going on uh, that's, that it was affecting all, several different airlines and a lot, especially this particular bad in Chicago. Yeah. Well, and just in the Midwest in general, and there were a lot of people, a lot of the people who were on this flight had already been delayed or had, you know, been trying to get <laughs> to where they were going uh, for, for quite a while. And $800 just wasn't doing it. <laughs> it was, there were a lot of people who wanted to get there more than they wanted to, $800 worth of United vouchers. Side note, uh, those who are familiar with the college admissions process will also note that <laughs> there's, note. there's, right, that there's a remarkable similarity between the overbooking strategy and policy of, of the airlines and what college admissions departments do when they always accept more people mm. than they could possibly fit, knowing that X number of people are going to, you know, accept at another school instead and most of the time this works out, uh, but I have vivid memories of my freshman year at the University of Rochester when this did not work out, and they had to purchase a hotel just to put people up, and there are some other people I know, people, Tara, my girlfriend knows, who, uh, who ended up actually squatting <laughs> because they were just completely denied residence at the University of Rochester. Really? Yeah, because they had filled up. They didn't they tell them before they people. got there? <laughs> they didn't, like, give you, like, a room assignment? or. Uh, in at least one case, there was no room assignment mm. given. They were just like, find an apartment in the city, wow. or we'll just let you stay on a friend's floor. Well, that's, that's not very good. Um, I mean, yeah. hotels certainly do. I mean, overbooking is a... is It's not necessarily the worst idea, and it's it's a practice that actually saves the, the airlines a lot right. of money and allows them to... Well, in, you know, right, in lots of industries. Use like, their product a lot more like, efficiently. The the thing that, that made people so angry about this particular case is not that everyone is suddenly enraged that overbooking exists it's the way they the airline handled it and yep. the way and and the way they tried to defend themselves in the aftermath uh, the ceo referred to what they did as quote unquote reaccommodating we're sorry that we had to reaccommodate this passenger reaccommodating being his, his blood onto well, his yeah, shirt reaccommodating being a euphemism for the the beatdown he got from these rather thuggish uh, police officers who you know didn't exactly uh, pull him off the plane with a lot of care 
And it's one of those things, I mean, there are, there were, I mean, some people tried to make it into like a racial thing. You know, the story was very big in China where United has mm. been trying to expand their market. The, the passant, the, the, the gentleman who was uh, reaccommodated uh, was, uh, I believe he's Vietnamese, but he's I Asian. Think so. I mean, it was, it may have been reported that he was Chinese or maybe people assumed that he was for one reason or another. And uh, I believe the the police who removed him, at least one of them, I believe, was African American. Uh-huh. But I mean, it's I think it's totally irrelevant. I don't think this particular thing had anything to do with 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 race. I think it had to do with just sort of the culture of the airlines in general, and yeah. their attitude is like, well, we make the rules. You know, you you you're you're you know tough. You know, <laughs> and even though there is competition among airlines, the consolidation in the airline industry there are fewer and fewer choices and if you boil it down to a very to specific roots you know if you've just got maybe two choices american and united to go for a for a specific route that's not really like exactly fierce competition right so here here we come to the big libertarian question which is what (laughs) what is the role of the government versus the role of the free market in handling a situation like this and handling its aftermath one of the things uh, that Lel just alluded to. We discussed this a little before the record, and I was saying that, you know, at least in this case, we don't have the monopoly problem in theory, that there are enough <laughs> other airlines who can say, oh, we have better policies about this, that people could theoretically be able to choose them, but there has been a dramatic movement towards monopoly within the airline industry. Uh, where they have been consolidating and reducing competition through consolidation over the last decade. And a lot of people will say, oh, that's well and good. You know, all this uh, libertarian philosophy about free market, blah, blah, blah. What does that really do for me in the real world? Okay, I I have to deal with, you know, (laughs) these crappy airlines and their crappy policies. And in the the aftermath of this incident, there was the the very predictable drumbeat of, uh, you know, from our... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from our <laughs> esteemed uh, representatives in Congress, you know, t- all, all this talk about, law. yeah, what, what can, what can, what needs to be do? Do we need a passenger bill of rights? Do we need to ban overbooking? Even, even though technically what Ooh. happened here wasn't technically overbooking because it was their own employees they were trying to accommodate. They weren't overbooked with paying passengers. They just wanted to use the seats for another purpose that they decided would be more efficient to their bottom line. Uh, But it's oddly enough, the problem essentially has solved itself. United has changed uh, uh, their policies in a, in a substantive way. They've already said now that they're not going to use a, they're not going to use law enforcement anymore to remain, to remove paying seated customers as they put it. So if you paid and you're seated, they're not going to physically throw you off with the cops. <laughs> I guess they'll have to, I don't know, use uh, more persuasive arguments Jesus. to get you to give up your seat. If you really want. They've also um, uh, said that after passengers have been boarded, that they won't uh, ask people to give up their seats for their own employees anymore. So it's, 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 I mean, the, the as far as United is concerned, they've, They've addressed the problem. Will it, you know, make people like them anymore? I, I don't. It, 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 but it, the, the goal, you know, the problem was essentially solved without anyone having to pass a law. <laughs> right. So that's the funny thing is, is you know, here's Congress standing proverbial dick in hand, saying, <laughs> "What am I supposed to do about this?" 
while the, while there's all of this social media and you know just sort of general exactly. public outrage and before congress could get their shit together enough to even discuss <laughs> like what could they really do versus not do already there is at least hopefully theoretically a solution to this from United's own corporate policies changing. Right. So while, you know, you've got the the, the media egging on, you know, the <laughs> the, 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 the yeah, the the people in Congress to be, to, you know, figure out what to do. One of the things I, you know, that was most often proposed is is banning overbooking. Well, I mean, you could ban overbooking. You could make it against the law for airlines to book more uh, passengers than they have seats for. But the thing is, overbooking was developed in the, you know, in the post-deregulation era as a way to, you know, allow airlines to make, you know, more profit off of these seats that are flying empty. And if you did, you could ban overbooking and you would never have another overbooked flight again. But it would it would add a lot to the cost of your ticket because it would kill off <laughs> all this you know i mean airline seats are what's known as a as a perishable commodity like any sort of ticket to any sort of event once the date passes that you know the va- it, the value just disappears into thin air and the more we allow airlines to be more efficient and fly with you know fuller planes as much as we dislike full planes that's what makes air travel as amazingly inexpensive as it is now. And as much as we all love to complain, I mean, people love to complain about airlines because it's one of those things where you're getting locked in a can well, it's- <laughs> and flown at high speed in a way that make it's, it's a thing that a lot of people don't understand. And you know, the, all the, the, the technicalities of it. And you feel kind of like you're not in control because you're not, <laughs> And it's, I think it's one of those things that kind of triggers, you know, people's, you know, deep down, you know, emotions and resentment about being, you know, essentially treated like a, like a commodity. Well, yeah. And we're definitely, uh, like cattle <laughs> as, yeah, that's the issue. We have definitely reached a point where on the one hand, air travel has become so inexpensive uh, relative to other things that people who in previous generations would never have left their hometowns are now able to fly around the world uh, as long as they like save up for it appropriately. But the trade-off is that while airplanes used to be airplane tickets used to be a luxury good, so everyone was treated as a luxury passenger. Over time, as airplane tickets have gotten cheaper, the customer service has commensurately gone down in quality well and the reason to the point where we all feel like chattel the reason historically why they all had to compete so heavily on providing good service is because the the civil aeronautics board the the forerunner of the faa used to set the fares they would hmm. choose the the air, which airlines got to flew which routes and they regulated what fares they could charge Mm. So they would award a route, let's say, you know, L.A. to Seattle. They'd say, all right, United Airlines and Alaska Airlines, you can fly this route. And this is how much you have you're allowed to charge. And so service was the only thing they could compete on. So you had all this over the top, you know, steak and lobster and champagne. And, (laughs) you know, that that was that was all they could do. And then in 1979, when uh, Jimmy Carter and his crowd deregulated the industry, it started essentially a race to the bottom in terms of service it was okay how much can we cut costs and make it less expensive so that we can still make a profit in this cutthroat 
uh, deregulation environment where you know you can charge as little as you want and provide <laughs> the as minimum amount of want. service. Well, that's in a way, uh, airplanes have become for this generation what buses were for a previous <laughs> generation. They have become that level of like blech. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that that's necessarily a totally bad thing because the side, the other side of it is air, airplane tickets are way, way cheaper as a percentage of income than they used to be. Well, um, one of the things that's been pointed out um, by people who study these things is that the airline industry is one of the few um, uh, industries now that has yet to be like really, truly disrupted by technology, by Silicon Valley and all their, I mean, Uber and Lyft have definitely disrupted the, the you know, like right. the taxi industry <laughs> and ground transportation. Uh, but the airline industry, even though we've had online booking and, you know, stuff like that for a while now, it hasn't changed the, ex right. the, well, at the, the, end of the, the experience day, when you actually get on the airplane. Yeah, at the end of the day, you still go to the same airport and you still get on the same airplane, right. even if you booked it in an unusual means. Right. And one of the, the reasons for that is because one of the things we, we, the, the, the Internet is very good at helping you find the lowest fare, but it isn't necessarily very good at helping you find the best the best value, the best experience, yeah. <laughs> the best product. You'll notice when you're when you're shopping for airlines on, you know, Expedia or right, there aren't pictures of the seats. Yeah, and they don't rate the airline like hotels. They rate by you know how many stars they have, and you see customer reviews. You know, talking about if the room was filthy and full of bed bugs, or you know, you don't see that for airlines because you're just sort of expected to know. There's no yeah, you're there's expected no filter to that know. says there's no fil there's no little checkbox that say you know only show me airlines that aren't terrible that don't treat people like shit and charge you <laughs> up the wazoo for peanuts and and whatnot. Well, that's the funny thing is people are just expected to know that like if you buy a ticket on Southwest, you're going to be treated like you know, sheep in a pen going to be slaughtered. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to be corralled onto the plane in a way that is mildly dehumanizing. <laughs> um, whereas you also know that if you're going to fly, you know, like Virgin America, that, well, I've, I don't know if I've ever flown them, that that's going to be somewhat better. I remember when JetBlue first became a thing, like everyone was talking about what great quality JetBlue was. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, everyone I knew was paying that little extra to make sure they ended up right. on JetBlue. But yeah, there's no, there's no, you know, Uber well, or Angie's List for airplanes. There's no. You have to really do your homework. If yeah, you want you to find out what the in flight experience is on an airplane, you have to, you have to go, you know, read forums or, you know, check. It's, it's, I mean, there's websites that are for, that mo that are mostly used by frequent flyers to figure out little nitty gritty things like what are the exact best seats on every exact model of airplane. But I, the vast majority of people when they're shopping, you know, especially people who aren't frequent flyers. Right, if you're flyers, looking at a kayak, people, you're just looking at price. People who fly fewer than, you know, two times or fewer per year, they're, they're probably not. For the, unless they're the type of person like me who likes to obsess about such things, <laughs> they're probably just they're mostly looking for price because even though airline, you know, airline tickets are cheaper than they've ever been when you adjust for inflation, it it's still kind of pricey for a lot a lot of people. Oh yeah, 
You know, I mean, yes, yeah, Southwest and, you know, I mean, you can get tickets for less than $100, but it's it's not, you know, super cheap either by no. for, a lot, for a lot of, you know, working people, especially right. if you're traveling with a family or... <laughs> well, and it's a matter of, uh, of priorities. Like, well, and there's, I... there's all these extra, you know, <laughs> costs that on top of it, like oh, the yeah. bags and the food and seat selection, all these things that used to be included, the whole unbundling of all the ancillary <laughs> services as the airlines like to call them is is a relatively recent development that a lot of people haven't frankly quite gotten used to so the lack of, i mean social media and the the outrage machine <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> of, of the news media has kind of fixed this one issue with united i mean i think to most people's yeah. satisfaction so one of the uh i was going to say this before one of the things that has come up uh, in my family specifically when talking about sort of libertarianism and free market philosophy is uh, my sister who is finishing up rabbinical school. She to her biggest problem with libertarianism is, you know, in a, in a sort of ideal libertarian society, the principal role of government is to enforce voluntary contracts <laughs> between or among parties. All right. And, but that requires that all of the sides in the contract have equal access to information. Well, yeah. Um, and my sister's argument has been that you cannot guarantee equal access to information between parties. Therefore, you end up with a lot of, uh, in a free market world, you end up with businesses that are able to exploit people by exploiting their lack of information. Well, and not just lack of information. It's not like when you buy an airline ticket that you have bargaining power to alter the contract. Right, <laughs> right but the, the only thing you can do is publicly shame them if you want to get them to change their behavior. So so here's the thing is with the, with the advent of modern mass media, we actually do have more equal access to information and we do have more bargaining power in mm -hmm. a way than previous generations have had because now you know united does this horrible thing someone captures it on their phone and within 24 hours it is the number one trending topic <laughs> in america everyone's talking about it united well, sure. stock price is going down you know everyone has to go into recovery mode and as long as you know we might as well address the snowflake aspect of this as well since we are Precious snowflakes, Precious snowflakes, after all. One of the other things I, I, you know, it's definitely probably in the minor. I, I, based on the articles I read on this topic, but there is a significant minority of people who seem to think that what United did, well, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit excessive. They weren't really wrong. That you know these people should have, you know, that basically when somebody tells you to get off, that you should, you know, not make a big deal about it. Don't make a fuss. That this guy, you know, was looking to make a scene. That he was, uh, you know, deliberately, you know, raising a ruckus and provoked the police. They, he made the cops drag him off. And if he just cooperated instead of, you know, causing all this commotion and, you know, the, it, basically defending United. <laughs> saying that, you know, the contract says that they can, do, you, know, the, you know, the rules are the rules, people. The people who <laughs> like to say, well, that, you know, the airline is technically correct. The contract of carriage said, and if somebody won't leave, well, you know, it's like, well, isn't it reasonable if someone won't leave your place of business after they've been asked nicely that the cops could physically remove them after warning him? I mean, isn't that reasonable? Is it, were, they, were, they, were the cops really excessive in dragging this guy off? Wasn't he asking for it? <laughs> The devil's advocate argument. 
you know, you say that it's actually it's sort of a hard road to go down because one of the questions is to what degree is this similar or different to a stand your ground situation? Uh huh. Um, you know, a stand your ground situation is someone walks into your private property. You want them to leave. If they refuse to leave in most states, you can just straight up shoot and kill them. Mm. Uh, and really, <laughs> someone's just standing there. <laughs> if someone's on your property, if someone's mm-hmm. on your property and you don't know or doesn't matter if they are on your property, it's your private property. There are a number of states where you can just straight up shoot to kill uh, because it's your property. And if they wouldn't mm-hmm. remove themselves voluntarily, then you have the right yeah. to remove them forcibly. I would have to look into that. That seems a little... <laughs> but that's that's sort <laughs> just of... Just the... standing there, not make, doing any sort of threat, just literally standing there, you can shoot them. Seems like we're getting a little bit... <laughs> but... Well, one of the funny quirks of it <laughs> is that there are some states, like I believe Texas has a standard ground law mm-hmm. that says that effectively with the caveat that you cannot shoot them in the back. Well, yeah, I mean, stand your ground laws usually have to do with what's known as the the duty to retreat. Yeah. When, you know, it means that basically if you're, you know, standing on your front porch and somebody is there, you know, threatening you, let's say, with physical violence or weapon, whatever, that um, you don't have a duty to basically run away, that you're allowed to stand your ground and, and shoot them. You don't have to essentially... Uh, avail yourself of an opportunity to retreat whereas in states that don't have stand your ground uh, I think you're supposed to make a reasonable (laughs) effort to uh, avoid the confrontation before you simply gun that whereas a stand your ground law is basically this idea that nope you were here you have the right to be here and if somebody is threatening you then you don't have to back down it's that's that's the idea of a stand your ground law but the thing, I mean, let's, I mean, not trying to, you know, stray too much off topic. And this, to, to me, when I, when I read stuff like that, people defending United, and that's, frankly, that's the part where I start to wonder if, you know, racism is kind of creeping its way in there a little bit. <laughs> but the, the real thing I, 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 you notice is, okay, there are some people who are very much into authority and like it's that whole law and order you know that very that thing that trump has definitely tapped into the sense of things need to be under control and people need to follow the rules and there there are people who get a lot of who you know they they've they they take comfort in in seeing people get told what to do and made to comply well i think there's um there's a key difference between what is or should be legally acceptable and what is or should be ethically and morally acceptable. Mm-hmm. And the, and I think one of the things that many libertarians would say is that a company like United has every, <laughs> has and should have every legal right to force people off their plane. If that's what's in, you know, the passenger contract mm-hmm. with, right. Which it is, uh, but morally and ethically, they shouldn't do that. So is it just the precious snowflakes uh, in our society? Those of us who are like, well, I paid for the ticket. I shouldn't have to leave, regardless of what the contract says. Whereas most people, you're just like, uh, oh, well, it's not it's not my lucky day. I guess I have to get off the plane because that's what they're telling me what to do. I mean, what would you do in that situation if you were sitting there and the, the, the gate agent walks up to you and says, sir, I'm sorry, um, but, you know, the... 
you know, we couldn't get any volunteers. And so we we're just, we had to choose you to give up your seat. And, you know, we have to ask you to, to deplane. Would you refuse to leave or would you, you know, I mean, I think most of us would kind of grumble and bitch and moan and, you know, but we, we would, it wouldn't, we wouldn't make the cops drag us off. I, I, I probably, I wouldn't, you know, if I saw the, if the cop stood there and told me he was going to drag me off the plane, I think I'd, I, I would probably go under my own power just because I don't want to experience yeah. that. Whereas this guy stood his ground <laughs> and got dragged and now he's kind of a hero. But a lot of people look at him as, ah, he's just a troublemaker. He should have just, he should have just gone willingly. My, yeah, my response to that would be that, you know, yes, he, he agreed to a contract that said that United had the right to do that, mm -hmm. but that also having paid for the ticket, <laughs> sitting there as he was, that for him to say, okay, well, you're going to have to hold up your end of that bargain, which is you're going to have to forcibly remove me. Right. I think that that's maybe not something that I would do because I have an aversion to having my teeth broken, mm -hmm. but... But I think, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't think he didn't do the right thing. Right. Like, I well, think, yeah, I think him being, I think him saying, okay, this may be in the contract, but I'm going to, I'm going to force you to enforce it on me. Uh, I don't think that's unreasonable. And the fact that it created a huge kerfuffle and lost a lot of business for United is an appropriate end result to what is effectively exactly. a bad corporate well, policy. That's that's the thing that I take some, you know, some solace in is that in this in our current, you know, in the current state of the world which seems like right-wing populism and authoritarian is definitely <laughs> you know what left-wing authoritarianism yeah in just some authoritarianism respects. I mean it's not really a very uh, libertarianism is not exactly the most popular uh, political ideology and in, in governments across the country or the world at the uh, at the moment however there are i the the, the fact you know social media and you know basically media outrage <laughs> and has basically given you know people a new way to essentially assert their rights their yep. their you know their basic human rights well, you know, people... it, I mean, without, you know, without cell phone cameras, this would never have, you know, oh, yeah. this would never have become a thing. It was people being able to witness it themselves and, and share it around the world. I mean, the fact that this was a huge deal in China, you know, tells you something. You I mean, know, United Airlines. <laughs> when people talk about the democratizing and liberalizing influences of current technology, you know, that is in a way, bringing modern society closer to what the Libertarian Party has always envisioned, mm -hmm. where people engage, where people are very engaged publicly with companies, with government, with each other, and but not mandatory, not in a way that is, <laughs> not in a way that is enforced, mm -hmm. that people can choose to engage with these issues and that we can see positive results. We can see substantive change as a consequence of people voluntarily pushing for something outside of government. Like now we're finally living in a world where that is possible. Uh, and I think this, yeah, at the end of the day, how the United thing played out, it has been affirmational when it comes to that, that human beings in multiple countries were able to sort of <laughs> rouse their rabbles together 
and get a policy change made by a company without the government having to intrude. And now other airlines like Delta has announced that they are now going to allow their, uh, their, their supervisors to offer up to $10,000 uh, to people to give up their seats if need be that I would take. And if you think, I mean, and obviously that's not going to be their opening bid and that that's kind of dangerous to advertise. A yeah, policy it's, such yeah, a, it's actually, but here's, but here's the way thing. to tip your hand there. Yeah. But here, I mean, that's first of all, involuntary denied boardings are, are fairly rare. And in most, I, I'm sure in, in almost any situation, you're going to get a taker at a lower price. I mean, I, I, unless everyone like, like, you know, sits around the place, shh, They'll go up to 10K. Make sure you don't bid on that. It's somebody, once they get to a couple thousand, I was going to be like, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, if you think about it, the amount of money this has cost United is, ex- I mean, I mean, they could have given, they could have handed everyone on the plane $10,000 in cash and still come out way ahead. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, the, the, the kind of bad publicity, the the amount of revenue that an airline or any company oh, can yeah. lose over something like this, it, it, you, it's almost impossible to even account for it. And so the it's, stock drop. Well, yeah. The actual value of the company going down in mm-hmm. real time as a consequence of an event like this. So our our esteemed legislators were left with sort of like nothing to do about this particular, right. no way to save us from this situation. Right. However, proverbial they are dicks in proverbial hands. There is still a lot of hand-wringing going on over the scourge of distracted driving. And I and I know that distracted driving is not a joke. It's it's a real problem. You know, people, you know, phones have gotten more and more, you know, pervasive and, you know, <laughs> addictive, frankly. It, you know, we have more and more things that we're doing on our phones all the time. And the, the, the urge to, the, you know, the, to, to do something while, you're, while you should have your eyes on the road is, is very powerful. Um, the Washington state legislator uh, and other states, I'm sure, are doing similar things, you know, in an effort to... Uh, to remove loopholes apparently because we've apparently got too many loopholes in our current distracted driving laws such as you know you there's certain things you i guess technically can say to the trooper that might get you out of it like saying that you were checking your programming your gps or dialing a phone number or whatever but now they want to they're they're basically trying to make it so that even touching your phone i don't know does it count if it's in your pocket I don't know, but <laughs> I'm I'm not convinced that these loopholes are the reason that the these laws are not having their intended, <laughs> the intended effect, effect of 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 reducing rates of distracted driving, and I um and I and I and I put it to you or to the to the world do do these laws actually achieve any measurable uh, increase in safety as as they're intended to or do they just you know, target uh, uh, certain you know, people unfairly. Yeah, my gut tells me that this does not do anything good. <laughs> uh, one of the things that we... It makes legislators feel good. It does. <laughs> so, well, one of the things... So we, we discussed this when it was still in its embryonic phase in episode two of this podcast. And now here we are with it having passed through the legislature on its way to Governor Inslee's desk, where he will presumably sign it with any number of exciting pens. <laughs> uh, and this really, you know, we are we are living in a moment uh, of sort of nationalist authoritarianism on the far right. 
but we're also living in a moment of i would say a softer authoritarianism from the left and it's particularly true of uh of people in states like washington state and california and the greatest example of an authoritarian left winger in government is chuck schumer (laughs) who we were discussing earlier uh Chuck Schumer, who once defended legalized torture by saying, well, it's one thing for you to say, you know, it's one thing for you to talk about torture while you're at home, but those people down in the trenches, they need every tool available. Mm -hmm. He said, defending the torture of (laughs) terrorism suspects in the 90s, before the Patriot Act. Um, So... So here we are again with the distracted driving. And for me, fundamentally, I just... When it comes to laws, for me, I always default to we should punish the effect, but not the cause. Or at the very least, the cause should be secondary to the effect. Uh, I think that's probably the better way of putting it. Cause should be secondary to effect. If the effect of distracted driving is that you got home safe, then that person, I don't think, should necessarily fear for, you know, having been mildly distracted, whether it was by their cell phone, by their hair and makeup, or, as we know from data that came out of Montana, uh, the distraction that is speed limits, because speed limits are, in fact, and speed traps are in fact as distracting in some contexts as things like food and phones and makeup. Um, so for me, it's all about the effect. And the, and the effect, if the effect is that someone dies in a car crash, well, obviously the taking of a human life well, yeah. is a thing that should be seriously considered well, and, we and should then we can look what, at the cause and we yeah and we should try to figure out what caused it if the cause was distracted driving well that should be taken into account obviously when deciding right. what the penalty what the, ought what to the be. penalty is the thing about these distracted driving laws i i think what what the the real push is not i mean they always have people come and testify and you know when they're when they're having these hearing you know there's always someone who's you know the uh, the family member of someone who was killed by someone who was texting or whatever but i i think what happens most often is people as they're driving around and as you do in seattle you see some pretty you know lousy driving and you see somebody you know who's kind of wandering around or just you know you you can tell a distracted driver when you see them Mm -hmm. and then you pull up alongside them and you look through your window and lo and behold there they are fiddling away with their phone or doing something else airheaded and you shake your fist at them and you you're like oh if only there was a cop here who could pull you over and write you a hefty ticket while wagging their finger and telling you how terrible you are that's what people want. They see people doing things that they don't like and they want, and they can't enforce it that we can't enforce it ourselves. We can't just go around pulling over, you know, random people that we see. It, it is, it is not hard to find people using their phones. I mean, if you, if you're driving around rubbernecking and <laughs> looking oh, through yeah. windows, well, always... you will see plenty of bad driving behavior. But the thing is there are, as is usually the case, there are not nearly enough police officers out there to really put any kind of real, I mean, you can pull people. I mean, even if all they did was just pull people over and write them tickets for distracted driving, how many of us are 
I mean, if we're being honest, are How guilty. Much that slow traffic. Well, it, I mean, it's just not. It's such a, it's such a pervasive thing. I mean, everybody has their phone, and everybody, almost everybody, is using it for some purpose whether it's making a phone call or navigating or doing god knows what yeah, playing music the problem is isn't a question of enforcement but a question of social engineering you know much like you know seat belts you know became part of our it became a cultural thing to wear the seatbelt. people finally got it through their heads that not wearing a seatbelt was a great way to end up you know as a as a bloody stain on the pavement <laughs> and and I think most people who where it's ingrained and 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 wear their seatbelts, it's it's not because they're afraid of getting a ticket. It's because it's the idea. Of, well, <laughs> like don't... you feel naked without wearing a seatbelt after you you know. Yeah, get... you'd rather not get launched through your own windshield. Yeah, and there's there's plenty of of evidence that can that shows the. I mean, I guess there are some people who still. You know, don't believe in seatbelts who will say things, oh, I'd rather be thrown clear or whatever. Maybe when you're driving your Model A, that's a, a better option. But for the most part, you know, if you want to, if you want to, the, the odds of avoiding a serious, you know, injury in a car crash are dramatically reduced by wearing your seatbelt. And most people have figured this out. Well, and the kinds so of you people. Don't, you don't have to be, <laughs> all, despite all these click it or ticket campaigns, I, 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 I'm not sure the enforcement angle is what gets people to wear their seatbelts. No, and I, and I think that the kind of person who says, I would rather be thrown clear of my vehicle when it inevitably <laughs> crashes, those kinds of people probably don't care about the ticket that much. They're, uh, if they're that reckless with their own lives, I'm guessing they're equally reckless with the 100 and whatever dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what about teenagers? What about the young people who we need to set a good example for? And if we don't have this law, well, you know, they how do I tell my kids they have to wear their seatbelts if it's not the law? They'll say, well, mom, there's no law against it. What don't I don't I want the cop to be out there looking out for my family and, you know, making sure that we're all as safe as possible? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's a. I don't know if that's a cop's of job. Of course, if you're, yeah, well, that's the thing is if you've if you've raised your kid to wear their seatbelt and they've been wearing it their entire life, why is your kid suddenly going to start driving around without their seatbelt ever just because you're looking away? I I always think back to <laughs> uh, that moment in the one of the 2000 presidential debates when they were asked about video game censorship, and George W. Bush's response was, "If I could legis- if I could sign a bill that would make people love each other." If I could legislate love, I would, but I can't. Um, And he was making a point about video game censorship, that parents should pay more attention to their kids and that they should teach love in the home. And I think that's applicable to all sorts of areas where (laughs) the fundamental problem is not what things are legal and what things are not legal. The fundamental problem is people who, who aren't taught appropriately and there's really no way to legislate people being compassionate empathetic humans uh like if you're if you're the kind of person if you're if you're raised in modern society you cannot avoid all of the ad campaigns about things like click it or ticket or don't text and drive or don't drink and drive you can't avoid those Mm -hmm. if you're an empathetic person who believes who who has some like real rational 
uh, feelings about that, then the laws that say you can't do those things are not going to be the reasons you don't do them. Well, no. That's <laughs> and the kind of person who chooses not to drink and text while driving, if a person chooses not to do those things mm-hmm. because, only because it's a law, I think that person's probably pretty rare. Well, and here here's the, another thing. and it, Well, th- it sort of sums up, you know, when you're trying to sell, you know, to explain the virtues of libertarian philosophy to anyone. It's always, you always get that kind of like, well, you know, I mean, I don't know how much, you know, it, I'm sure there's plenty of, you know, liberals and conservatives, authoritarian types that you've, you know, you try to tell the, explain the virtues of, <laughs> of libertarianism. And it's always, well, you know, that's all well and good for maybe you and maybe for me and most of the people we know because, you know, they're good people. Right, we but can all, all trust these, each other. Yeah, but. but, you know, it's not realistic because they're all, the, you know. All of them, all those other people, they need <laughs> rules. It's it's the same. I, I you hear the same thing about about religion. It's like, well, I can be a good moral, you know, person, do the right thing without without having religion. But all those all those masses of you know ignorant, uneducated people, whatever, they need religion to keep them in line. Otherwise, they'd have no reason to be a good person. I remember hearing a uh, Rick Santorum giving a, a radio interview once where he was talking about well. You know, without without the believing in the existence of God, well, you know, God puts that moral imperative on you to be, you know, a just moral human being and not, you know, do horrible things like, you know, killing and raping and, you know, stealing and all that kind of stuff. And and without God, well, you know, people, you know, they wouldn't have any moral foundation to do the right thing. And I and to me, I find that so like narrow minded and, and condescending. Here's a guy who's a lawyer who's very well educated. He also likes to say that it's that he also said Obama was a snob for suggesting that uh, people should uh, go to college. <laughs> but uh, you know this idea that well I you know have some sort of moral foundation that's you know my of my own you know making that all those other every other people need some sort of you know some so they, they need you know morality to be forced on them or not just morality but civic responsibility like knowing how to do the right thing and it's hard to convince people that you know (laughs) draconian laws that you know restrict (laughs) you know cell phone usage don't necessarily have the effect that you want them to have and they have all sorts of unintended consequences uh and and affect the people who you know can really least afford to <laughs> well, there's be a, targeted by them. You know, the the theoretical Santorum in this conversation does... There is something to be said about sort of cultural values and mm-hmm. cultural norms. And I'm sure we could have a whole separate conversation about the deterioration of ethical cultural norms in russia well oh post, like Russia's post great the example. banning of religion or and and the banning of basically being gay you know well <laughs> but i think if you want to talk about like where where did sort of cultural values yeah. begin to deteriorate mm-hmm. to a point of crazy lawlessness it 
it was around the time of the communist revolution. Well, yeah, and the, the whole um, a whole separate thing right, about but that's religious freedom, thing. and does religious freedom basically mean the freedom of to uh, you know protect impose your religion on everybody else, as opposed to be able to practice it freely? Well, I think I would just say <laughs> that there is something to be said for for a religious institution in uh, in a suboptimally educated society serving as an ethical backbone but in in american society i would like to think that we have sort of culturally evolved to a point where we have cultural values that make that are part of why the united states is a safer healthier country than other countries in the world there are some people who are just going to rip into what i just said uh (laughs) Yeah, I'm not actually a believer in cultural well, relativism. Well, yeah. I, I, well, I, I would agree with you. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, so-called liberals who like to defend a lot of cultural, other cultures that aren't especially liberal. But that's a whole yeah, I don't, another topic. You know, we're preaching, you know, tolerance for things that you would never put up with <laughs> in your own family or in your own, you know, culture and defending it. Well, that's their culture. It's terrible. But, you know, it's you've got to respect their culture. It's like, well... That's no, how can I you call yourself don't. a liberal when that's the opposite of liberal? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my my response to that is like, no, I don't necessarily need to respect their culture. I can understand uh certain religious, cultural, ethnic traditions, but at some point like there are just there are things that we have moved past in some parts of the world mm-hmm. and in some subgroups that others have not. Right. Um but one of the, part of what I was getting at is that we we do have, and this comes back to United Airlines thing, we have cultural values here where I think we do a pretty good job of of teaching empathy and compassion and don't kill your neighbor. Uh-huh. And whether whether that's because of America's democratic traditions, religious traditions, uh, the melting pot of cultures and societies, that have brought out the best in those respective cultures in America, we have reached a point where we don't need a draconian law to say, don't kill your neighbor. There, there may be places in the world where people feel like that's necessary, you know, to some degree or another. But at the end of the day, I think when you, when you reach a point of saying to yourself, well, if we didn't have a law, uh, if we didn't have a law, would people do this thing anyway? And if well, the sure answer, they will. <laughs> but, well, no, but if your answer is like, if we, if we didn't have a law requiring uh, seatbelts, or if we didn't have a law that that said that you know people can't drive drunk, if we didn't have those laws and the numbers of people dying in collisions shot through the roof as a consequence, instead of reassessing the law itself. I think that would be a reason to reassess how we teach people how to drive mm. and how we as a culture respond sure. to vehicles. Well, it's it's less I mean that's the harder road to go down is when something is an endemic problem instead of immediately reaching for the legislative hammer mm. to hammer it down instead try to look at what caused it to be there and what aspects of our culture have have made that a thing. Well, that's very introspective, but 
<laughs> you know, draconian laws and the legislative hammer and the the hammer of government in general is very much in vogue right now around the world. It's not oh, yes. certainly. I mean, look at uh, look well, at look at Turkey. I mean, Turkey right now. I don't know what the result is, but they they have a nationwide referendum going on right now to basically make <laughs> to their declare president Erdogan dictator. Basically, uh, basically it. Uh, Essentially, I mean, what is it? It, it makes it uh, possible for him to stay in office until twenty twenty nine. I mean, and it uh, it ba- basically you know uh, defangs the parliament, uh, puts him in charge of this. It basically makes him the dictator of the country, and people are seriously considering. I mean, and he's his core base of support are religious conservatives, the people who are yep. typically less you know literate, you know less educated, more you know socially conservative. They are his base of power and that's become a you know the you know religious conservatives have become more of a a power base in this country as well with the the last election it's you know it's you know liberal democracy is kind of losing its 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 liberalism as right-wing authoritarianism in pop of the populist variety is you know springing up around the world it's uh, so on one hand it's not a great time to be a libertarian on the other hand the uh, the social media and the and the global internet has has made it harder for those in power, whether they be government or corporate, to get away with shit. Well, and as we <laughs> without a popular revolt, as we look at international elections as sort of a barometer of this new fight, uh, one of the things that is evident when you look at basically every country that is not the United States is that. As the sort of populist nationalist far right has ascended to power in so many places, the their natural opponent, instead of being a more mainstream conservative group or instead of being the left, <laughs> one of the things that's happened is that libertarian leaning political parties have emerged as the as the counterpoint to the populist nationalism, <laughs> you know, in in France right now. You know, they started with the two, uh, the two most likely presidential contenders were uh, Benoit Hamon, who is the center-left social democrat candidate, and uh, Francois Fillon, who is the center-right, you know, conservative candidate, and both of them are effectively going down in flames, and the two <laughs> candidates who have emerged as the leaders are, of course, Marine Le Pen, head of the National Front, which is their far-right populist nationalist party, very Trumpian, and also super, super racist. (laughs) Uh, But the counterpoint to her was not... The counterpoint to her is not Fion or Hamon or even (laughs) Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the Trotskyite, whose numbers are going up. The real counterpoint to Le Pen's populist nationalism is Emmanuel Macron, who is effectively a moderate libertarian, you know, trying to appeal to the left and the right, free market, socially liberal. That's his bag. And I think as the populist nationalists like Trump, Putin, Erdogan, Marine Le Pen, uh, Gert Wilders, you know, previous topic of conversation... As they, you know, fight as hard as they do, I think we're going to see libertarian-leaning politicians like Emmanuel Macron 
really emerge as their counterpoints. So I think this is an optimistic time to be a libertarian or like a small L libertarian leaning politician. The question is, how will this apply to countries that have effectively two party right left dichotomies? (laughs) You know, France kind of has that, but that got broken this year. And now we're probably going to see Le Pen and Macron face off in, you know, the first uh, second round election in France to not include candidates from either of their mainstream parties. But how does that apply to a place like the United States where the whole system has been designed to beat third parties and independent candidates into <laughs> a bloody Can you describe pole? the motion you're making? <laughs> a beating motion? It may have, I don't know. Imagine it, listeners. Um, Sorry. Anyway, big point is, yeah, we're definitely living through an authoritarian moment. But hopefully the counterpoint to this new authoritarianism coming from both sides will be a sort of centrist libertarian movement. Uh, And it's already happening in Europe. And we can only (laughs) hope that it will happen here more as well. Uh, And that we can really, you know, talk to each other. We don't need legislation to know how to love each other. As George W. Bush once said. Well, we should, with that, we should probably wrap up today. What do you think? Are we, have we, have we, I think so. Have we, have we been precious enough? We have been quite precious this week. (laughs) Chris is nodding. Well, that's uh, another edition. I'm not sure. I forget which episode number, which episode number is this, Chris? That's it for episode seven of the Precious Snowflakes podcast. I'm Lelius Rose. And I'm Ben Phelps. And until next time, which. I'm not even sure when that'll be. Ben and I will be actually... um, We will be at the Libertarian Party of Washington State Cascade Liberty Summit and State Party Convention in Moses Lake next weekend. That sounds libtastic. Yeah, so that should be very exciting. (laughs) We may do an on-the-road podcast there, or we may skip next week and do our summary the following week. We'll figure it out. We may do it. We may... I mean, we're going to be getting libtarded out there, so... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. Well, that's it. No apologies. <laughs> All right. See you next time on Precious Snowflakes. Peace out, listeners. <laughs> Bye.